Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. I think that the preamble tells us the guiding values of the Constitution. And then the interpretive enterprise is how to apply those values in interpreting the text of the Constitution to modern problems. Hello, and welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Erwin Chemerinsky, who is the dean of the University of Berkeley School of Law and author, um, most recently, of We the People, a progressive reading of the Constitution for the 21st century. I've been thinking a lot about Chemerinsky's book recently because there is a power level to which the right has been dominating the courts. Um, they, through what Mitch McConnell did to Merrick Garland and, and Donald Trump's election, obviously have a big majority on the Supreme Court. Um, they've been relentless and very effective in terms of stalking lower courts. So there's a power level to it. And the only way you deal with the power level is through elections. But there's also just an interest level in it. I mean, if you spend much time with folks on the right, they talk a lot about the Constitution. Developing a theory of constitutionalism is a central project on the right. And for reasons we talk about a bit here, it's not nearly so much on the left. The left uh, I think for, for good reasons, actually, looks at a lot of that as some level of kabuki theater, wants judges who, who, who agree, but, but does not find arguing over the Constitution or trying to ground its ideas in constitutional interpretation past a certain point to, to, to be all that important. And that's, I think, left the left uh, disarmed in a battle of argumentation that it properly has the better of. Um, I don't think that these ideas that have dominated in right-wing um, legal circles are all that strong. But I think they've often been allowed to seem that way because folks on the left are not as interested in arguing them through. So Chemerinsky is somebody who is trying to engage that battle and engage a debate. And I think it's really useful to hear out how he thinks about it. Uh, as always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here's Erwin Chemerinsky. Erwin Chemerinsky, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you. So is the Constitution dead, dead, dead? No, the Constitution is a living document. It was written in 1787, and the only way it can govern our modern world of 2019 is to be a living document. So the, the, the reason I ask that for, for folks who don't quite know the reference is uh, Justice Scalia, who I think has been the most influential conservative legal thinker of, however, of quite some time, um, used to say often the Constitution is dead. And the big fight in legal interpretation, certainly in politicized legal interpretation, is whether or not the way to approach a Constitution is as a dead document that needs to be interpreted the way it would have been interpreted at the moment of its writing or a living document. And so the criticism people make of the living Constitution 
is aren't you just inferring your own values into it? At that point, do you even have a constitution anymore at all? Or are you just working on some kind of project of uh, like sophist inter- reinterpretation? All justices are reading their values into the constitution. That's inevitable. The constitution was written in very broad, open-ended language. What's due process of law? What's equal protection? What's speech? And besides that, constitutional law inherently involves balancing of competing interests. No rights are absolute. What's a sufficiently compelling interest to justify infringing a right? What's a legitimate interest? There's no way to decide what's compelling, what's legitimate, except by making value choices. So the key to remember is that all justices, in fact, all judges, are making value choices that's inherent to the interpretive process. But that's a contested idea, right? I I think a lot of the conservative judicial rhetoric is that they're not making value choices. They are just, they're doing archaeological or historical work to understand what what the framers meant at the moment the framers intended. So why do you think they're making, they're just calling balls and strikes? I think it's nonsense. Let's take an example, affirmative action. For all nine justices, the question has been, Is diversity in the classroom a compelling government interest? There's no way to answer that without making a value choice. Not surprisingly, the conservative justices would say that affirmative action is unconstitutional. The liberal justices would say that it is constitutional. If we were just going back to the original understanding, there's overwhelming evidence that the framers of the 14th Amendment meant to allow affirmative action. They adopted things like the Freedmen's Bureau that today we regard as race-conscious programs. This is one example. I could give you endless ones. Or take the instance of Citizens United, where the Supreme Court held that corporations have the right to spend unlimited amounts of money in election campaigns. Hard to believe there's any evidence that the framers thought that spending money in election was speech, let alone that corporations should be able to spend as much as they want. The conservatives were making a value choice. I'll give you one more example. On June 27th of this year, the Supreme Court held five to four that challenges to partisan gerrymandering can't be adjudicated by the federal courts. Partisan gerrymandering is where the political party that controls the legislature draws election districts to maximize their seats for that party. That was a value choice by the conservatives and a value choice by the liberals. You're not going to find any evidence about it in the text of the Constitution or the original understanding. One of the things that is striking to me about the interpretive mode of originalism is the the, the the idea that the founders can be thought of as having a unitary will. Um, uh, I was reading George Will's book recently, uh, and he was just on the podcast, actually, and we were talking a bit about this because he, he talk he argues that the conservative experiment writ large, not just the, ju- the judicial approach, but the whole of conservatism is about upholding what the founders wanted. But the I am no historian, but the founders disagreed pretty dramatically in a way that always seems to me to make an utter hash of that argument. It's a myth to say that there was a unitary intent on behalf of all of those who participated in drafting or ratifying the Constitution. I like when I teach constitutional law to point to some critical places where Madison and Hamilton disagreed. They disagreed, for example, as to whether or not Congress, when it spends money, can spend for any purpose or only to facilitate the specific goals set out in the Constitution. They very much disagreed about other things in terms of executive versus legislative power. And so if Hamilton and Madison, the quintessential framers, disagreed, 
What about all of the others? I have an example to illustrate this. From 1997 to 1999, I chaired an elected commission in Los Angeles to rewrite the city charter. And a charter for a city in California is like its constitution. It creates the institutions of government. It allocates power among them. It even can protect rights beyond that in federal and state law. There were only 15 of us. And what we discovered over and again is even when we voted for things, we later realized we disagreed about what we had in mind. As soon as the charter got adapted, issues arose, and there were ones we really never thought of. And had we polled the living commissioners, we would have disagreed about what we meant. This was right after it was adapted, and there were only 15 of us. It's inherent to the adopting, to the ratifying process, that those disagreements will exist. Right, and I mean, that's why we have political parties on some level. Well, and the framers didn't understand, and didn't contemplate political parties. But that's what I mean, that partially what created the split of political parties was an argument over constitutional interpretation by the people who had written the Constitution. Well, that's true at the very beginning. You had the Federalists who supported the Constitution and the Anti-Federalists who opposed it. But political parties, as we think of them now, Democratic Party, Republican Party, were something that the framers very much didn't want to see happen. The political parties developed very quickly, and that then led to the need to amend the Constitution early in its history. I wanted to ask about meta-constitutional intent, which is to say, how did the, the framers, the founders, believe or intend for the Constitution to be interpreted over time? I mean, I know that there are kind of interesting Phillips of this, things like Thomas Jefferson, who obviously wasn't at the convention, but but believing that the Constitution should uh, become inoperative with every generation that will have to be readopted. I mean, did in your in your judgment, did the founders believe that the Constitution should in the future be adopted based on what they thought at that time? Or did as people who were creating a quite revolutionary document, did they expect that they were creating a country of people like them who would continue pushing boundaries as the knowledge of human government and, and human existence pushed forward? On the one hand, there's a strong argument that the framers did not want their intent to control the future. James Madison took the official notes of the Constitutional Convention, and he ordered that they remain sealed until after his death. His view was that the Constitution should stand on its own for the future. Duke Law Professor Jeff Powell wrote a very famous article 30 years ago titled Original Understanding of Original Understanding, in which he argued that if we really wanted to follow the framers' intent, we'd have to abandon looking to the framers' intent. On the other hand, the framers didn't think of interpretation the way we do today. They believed in natural law. They believed that a key role of judges was to find the natural law principles and then implement them. We no longer believe in natural law. So it's hard to look at their interpretive methodology as a way to guide us today. Can you talk a bit about natural law? This comes up, I think, quite a bit in conservative jurisprudence arguments. And I think it's often an unfamiliar idea to people who have not encountered it. So so give me, give me the, the quick version on natural law. It was believed for a time, and some, though, minority today still believe, that there are legal principles that exist in the universe and that the role of the judge is to find them and to apply them. In the early 20th century, a group came along called the legal realists, and they said, there's really no such thing as natural law, that when the tort law favors employers over injured employees or contract law favors merchants over consumers, it's not some natural law principle. It's that judges made choices to favor employers and to favor merchants. And today, with a limited exception, we're all children of the legal realists. 
we all believe that judges are making value choices. Uh, but I, I actually, the reason this pings on, on me is that there's a lot of natural law rhetoric in, in George Will's book, and it is a argument I have struggled to try to understand generously. So make the case for natural law to me, the case that it would make sense to say that 230 years ago, the founders recognized that there were principles of rights and law pre-existing in human civilization that they had discovered and that just like that was it. Like they discovered them. Those are the ones that are there. And now we're done. It, it seems on its face so peculiar that I, I, I keep thinking I'm misunderstanding something profound. Well, I think you've stated what the view about natural law is about. Um, but I also think your skepticism is why most people are skeptical of natural law today. There's also a real tension. Most who believe in natural law believe that it's God-given principles. Right. And in fact— It makes more sense, was, honestly, if you come from that perspective. That's what it was thought of early on. Blackstone said that the common law is the law that God has given in common to all of the people. And what judges are to do is to discover those common law, natural law principles. But the framers thought themselves as children of the Enlightenment. They believed that reason had replaced religion as the basis for decision. So there's a real tension between saying the framers believed in natural law and recognizing that the framers were trying to create a secular government where reason did replace religion. Do you think it's fair to say that conservatives in general and the conservative movement is just fundamentally more interested in arguments over constitutional interpretation than progressives in the progressive movement? No. I think that both liberals and conservatives are engaged in the enterprise of interpreting the Constitution. I think both conservatives and liberals will inevitably reading their own values to it. Take Antonin Scalia as an example. He believed that the Establishment Clause creates no limit on prayer in schools, no limit on aid to parochial schools. He believed that there's no right to privacy in the Constitution, like no right to abortion in the Constitution, that affirmative action is unconstitutional. Unless you think that Antonin Scalia and the framers had the same views or that the Republican platform of 2016 and the framers had the same views, you see exactly what I'm saying. I'll give you an example of this from a case that I argued in the Supreme Court in January of this year. It's a case called Franchise Tax Board versus Hyatt. And it involves 1979 Supreme Court precedent that said that a state government can be sued in another state's court. And the state of California, its franchise tax board, was saying to the Supreme Court, overrule that longstanding precedent. Three times at oral argument, different justices said to the attorney for California, Seth Waxman, where in the text of the Constitution do you find this? And finally to say, it's the best I could do. It's not there. And of course, it wasn't discussed at the Constitutional Convention in 1787. It wasn't discussed at the ratifying conventions. And so my argument was that under the 10th Amendment to the Constitution, states can do anything that's not prohibited by the Constitution. So I had a textual argument. I think I had a strong original understanding argument because the framers meant to allow states to protect their own citizens. But I lost five to four with Justice Thomas dismissing my position as, quote, ahistorical literalism. <laughs> that's a that's a sick burn. <laughs> um, the the reason I ask this though, because I, I want to push this from a, a slightly different point. I, I reckon I, I take your point that no matter what you're doing in American life, if you're in American political life, you're you are implicitly or explicitly interpreting and at times reinterpreting the Constitution. 
But something that has struck me from living in D.C. for 15 years and being quite um, conversant in the, the political movements that dominate there is there is a much more constant, explicit rhetoric around the Constitution on the right than on the left. And my suspicion has long been that people on the left who are much more influenced by legal realism and in some cases by more uh, jaded versions of legal realism, which I would say I'm also more influenced by, often find some of this debate to be convenient. That this idea that you went to the Supreme Court and lost 5-4, but if Hillary Clinton had won the election, you might have won 5-4, just goes to show there aren't right answers here. There's power that is being dressed up under constitutional means. Whereas on the right, well, I don't want to say there's not cynicism and power grabbing there because I think there, there quite is. But there is a more aligned idea that the movement is about reverence for the past, the it's about reverence for the founders and that, you know, if you can align yourself with the founders in some way, you know, prove that they thought you were right. You have proved something very fundamentally important. Whereas on the left, um, if you prove that a founder thought what you thought, well, I mean, great, but so what? Um, and that has led to a kind of asymmetry in this argument, just because one side sort of it it's not the core of their belief system and the other side it really is. I think that's taking the conservative rhetoric too much at face value. That's fair. I think it ignores the extent to which conservatives are making value choices just as much as liberals, but they're trying to hide their value choices. Let me go back to the example of affirmative action. If you really want to follow the original understanding of the 14th Amendment, affirmative action seems clearly constitutional because the Congress that ratified the 14th Amendment adopted so many programs that were race-conscious benefits. Yet in that area, you find the conservatives, like Justice Scalia and Thomas, want to ignore the history. But it also goes back to something else I said. Constitutional law inherently involves balancing. Let's take the example of gay marriage. Keeping gays and lesbians from marrying is undoubtedly an equal protection issue. That doesn't say who should win the equal protection issue, but they are discriminated against in the sense that heterosexuals can engage in marriage. At the very least, every equal protection question requires that the government have a legitimate purpose for the distinction. Well, the question is, does the government have a legitimate interest in keeping gays and lesbians from marrying? That can't be answered by the text of the Constitution. It can't be answered by the framers' intent. It's a value choice. Mm -hmm. Is there a legitimate interest? Does it surprise us that the liberals found there was no legitimate interest and the conservatives found a legitimate interest? It's all about their values. So I agree with that entirely. Let me try to synthesize these points, and then I want to move into the, the, the progressive constitution idea. One of the things that seems true to me is, as you say, I think everybody's doing the same thing. But there is a way in which conservatism is very interested in tradition, and progressivism is interested in progress, that creates a, a, a real difference to me in the rhetoric. Like, as you say, I think that there's more effort on the conservative side to dress up what is fundamentally value judgments as originalist um, framer-reverent interpretation. And on the progressive side, there just isn't the interest in doing that. And so it makes constantly connecting things back um, just, just seem like an odd like an odd way to spend your time. But that that over time has also led to a real, uh, like, a, like a real weakness on the progressive side in terms of theorizing and thinking about the Constitution because people kind of don't want to do it as much. They don't see the Constitution as as limiting, and they don't see aligning themselves with initial founder intent as as important. 
um, there has just become a way in which a lot of the argumentative territory has been ceded to the right because they want that territory in a way that the, the left does not realize it needs it. I think the rhetoric has been won by, more by the conservatives, by the liberals. I mean, you could have the rhetoric, going back to Richard Nixon, of conservatives embracing judicial restraint, even when it's not. How can you describe Citizens United as judicial restraint? How can you describe striking down affirmative action programs as judicial restraint? But the conservatives continue to have the rhetoric of judicial restraint and rail against liberal judicial activism because it's rhetorically comfortable. Conservatives can say, we have a theory, originalism. Progressives don't have any comparable theory, so we're better. Well, it's much harder for progressives to say, hold it, originalism is an emperor with no clothes. It doesn't really exist. Everyone's making value choices, but I don't think that the left has come up with the rhetorical devices that equal what the right has come up with. But you have come up with a progressive reading of the Constitution that I think is very compelling. So give me the big picture of it. How, how, how do you believe we should think about the Constitution? Well, we've already begun by saying we have to regard the Constitution as a living document, and we have to realize that all justices are equally making value choices. And then I say, let's start with the preamble to the Constitution. And the preamble has been largely overlooked by the Supreme Court and scholars. I think that the preamble tells us the guiding values of the Constitution. And then the interpretive enterprise is how to apply those values in interpreting the text of the Constitution to modern problems. Talk me through a bit about how to do that. I mean, when you say focus on the preamble, I don't know that everybody has a preamble memorized. So why don't we start there? What is a sure. preamble set as a context for understanding the Constitution that is often missed? Well, the preamble sets out basic values. One of them is democratic governance. It starts with the words, we the people. And I think those are enormously significant because most governments at that time were monarchies where they believed that they had the right to rule based on divine commands. We say it's the people who've created. And so I think what we have to decide is, what does democratic rule mean today? And how do we interpret so many of the provisions of the Constitution that are about democracy to deal with current problems. But but to, to push on that a little sure. bit, obviously when they wrote, and I recognize this gets into living versus dead, when they wrote We the People, they had a very limited idea of the people. So to say that We the People meant democracy in the way we think about it now is the idea then that there was clearly a value there that was being interpreted incorrectly, or is the idea that it just creates a space to insert a value? I mean, how do you how do you think through, how do you walk through the tension between what they clearly meant by democracy and what we mean, or hopefully mean, by democracy? It's all a question of the level of abstraction that you look at something. If you want to focus on their specific intent, well, the people who they gave political power to were white males who owned property. That would be repulsive to us today, and it should be. It's part of why originalism makes no sense. But I do think the idea of we the people reflects something very important about the Constitution and its commitment to democracy. We have to define what that means. But so many of the provisions of the Constitution, including its amendments, are about democracy. Think of not just Article One that tells us how we elect members of Congress, or Article Two, how we select the president, but so many of the amendments, starting with the 12th Amendment, which changed the way the president was elected, the amendments that gave women the right to vote, the amendments that eliminated the poll tax, the amendments that gave 21-year-olds the right to vote, 
and I've just mentioned a few of these, to me, these all reflect a commitment to a vision of democracy. And then the question is, as we look at today's problems, what does it mean to say we the people? And then walk me through some of the other preamble um, values. Sure. I think that another value of the preamble is effective governance. Got to remember the Constitution was created because of the value of the Articles of Confederation. The Articles of Confederation had a very weak president. Congress had no power to adopt taxes for the population, little ability to adopt laws that regulated the population. There was no federal judiciary. It was a dismal failure, which is why the Constitution was created. And so then we have to think about what does it mean to create effective governance with checks and balances? And again, we have to deal with it in the context of today's problems. The Constitution specifically says that it's about justice. Well, what do we mean by justice? I think historically, we can go back to the Magna Carta, we can go back to the Torah, there's both a procedural and a substantive aspect of justice. There is a very famous quote in Deuteronomy that says, justice, justice, thou shalt pursue. Why is justice mentioned twice? Because there's a procedural dimension in terms of fairness, but also the outcomes have to be substantively fair. And that's found in the Magna Carta. And then we can talk about, well, what does justice mean today? And the Constitution mentions liberty. It is about securing freedom to people. That's why the Bill of Rights was adopted, to enumerate some of those freedoms. I think the value that's missing in the preamble is equality. Mm-hmm. And that's because it was written for a slave society. It was written in a society where women had no political rights. And so I would say those are the values. And I think both liberals and conservatives would agree that those are the values of the Constitution, even though they may disagree about the content of how they'd be implemented. So then what does, given that it is so easy to disagree about the content of how those values would be implemented, even if you agree on the values, what does viewing the Constitution through that lens and the way you do, do to change constitutional interpretation or application? I think it changes the conversation. Because now what we're saying is we agree that there has to be, say, democratic governance. What do we mean by democratic governance? So in the book, I pick some examples, including one I've already alluded to, partisan gerrymandering. And I make the argument that partisan gerrymandering is inconsistent with democratic governance. Can you walk through that argument a little bit sure. in a little bit more detail? As I mentioned, partisan gerrymandering is the practice with a political party that controls the legislature draws election districts to maximize the seats for that party. It's say where a Republican legislature draws election districts to maximize the seats for Republicans. It's nothing new. It takes its name from a governor of Massachusetts early in American history, Elbridge Geary, who engaged in the practice. But what's changed now is that because of sophisticated computer programs, it's possible to engage in partisan gerrymandering with far more precision than ever before. Take... North Carolina is an example, and I use it because it was the focus of the Supreme Court decision on June 27th, Rucho versus Common Cause. North Carolina is basically a purple state. It went for Obama in 2008, for Romney in 2012, for Trump in 2016, but always 51, 52 to 48%. Republicans got a slight majority of the seats in the state legislature then immediately engage in redistricting to give themselves a supermajority in both houses of the legislature. They then set out to draw congressional districts. And in a written report, they said their goal was to give Republicans control of at least 10 of 13 seats in the House of Representatives of North Carolina. And they said they'd give themselves more than that if they could figure a way to draw a map for it. They had a computer draw 3,000 different maps. 
And then they picked the one that was most likely to give Republicans control of 10 of 13 seats. In 2016, Democrats and Republicans got the same number of votes for House of Representatives seats in North Carolina, but Republicans got 10 of 13 seats. I think this is inconsistent with the most basic notions of democracy. Democracy should mean that it's voters are choosing elected officials. This was elected officials were choosing their voters and entirely on the basis of partisanship. And so I read the opinions in this case, and let me do this in two rounds. I, I do want to say, if you've not read it, Elena Kagan's dissent in this is fire. It's a it's a hell of a dissent. Yes. So the argument that I believe it's John Roberts makes yes. on behalf of the of the five four majority is that primarily there is nothing they can do because they don't have the power, but also because they don't have the tools that it would be judging from the bench, uh, judicial activism or judicial legislating, if they began to come in and say, okay, this is a little bit too much partisan gerrymandering, and this is under the line of partisan gerrymandering. Kagan says, well, if you need a standard, how about saying this much is too much? If you've gone through 3,000 maps and pick the one that is the worst for the other side, that is too much. And Robert says, that is not a standard. That's not even an effort to create a standard, and it shows you don't have a standard. So, their argument is not that it accords with the values of the Constitution, but that you are asking them to, on the Supreme Court, to exceed their actual um, strength uh, or, or, or proper role. What is your, what is your, what is the counter case? Let me step back and then I'll answer directly. After Earl Warren stepped down as Chief Justice, he was asked, what was the most important case or cases decided during his tenure? Without hesitation, he said, the reapportionment cases. Baker versus Carr, Reynolds versus Sims. Because prior to the 1960s, many state legislatures were badly malapportioned. You might have one district where 25,000 people elected representative and another district for the same body where 100,000 elected representative. And the Supreme Court said that violates the Constitution. Previously, the Supreme Court said, we can't adjudicate this because there's no standards. But the Supreme Court in Baker versus Carr said, we will adjudicate it. And then in Reynolds versus Sims said, we'll create a standard. One person, one vote. All districts must be about the same in population. Well, likewise, with regard to partisan gerrymandering, the court could create standards. One standard that was adopted by a three-judge federal court in Wisconsin is called the efficiency gap. Look at the difference between the votes party gets and the number of seats it ends up with. And if there's a substantial disparity explainable in partisanship, it's unconstitutional. The court even had a three-part test for the efficiency gap. And judges love three-part tests. But you could also look, as Justice Kagan does, and say, the basic tests throughout the law is you look at purpose, you look at effect, and you look at causation. And she says, why can't we just use that as a test? Other courts have done this. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court a year and a half ago found that the gerrymandering in Pennsylvania violated the Pennsylvania Constitution, used their test. Courts come up with tests all the time, especially for vague concepts. I think this is a good time to take a quick break. I'll be right back with my guest, Erwin Chemerinsky. I want to try to take the conservative side of this, sure. of this discussion because I want to understand what you're doing here that is actually a constitutional interpretation as opposed to simply saying the Constitution supports your interpretations. So let me ask it this way. Something you said a couple minutes ago is the Constitution is built atop values of democracy, of liberty, of effective governance, but it is not built atop the value of equality. What is the absence of that value from at least a preamble, the Constitution, disallow, or what boundaries does it create that you may not like? What, what, what would you want that is not permitted by your reading of the Constitution? Well, 
I'm going to break your question in two parts. First, in terms of equality, remember the 14th Amendment was right, adapted in 1868. I recognize that's a big hole in my, in and, my question here. Right. Um, <laughs> second, there are many things that I would like that would require a constitutional amendment. I'd like to see term limits for Supreme Court justices and probably for lower federal court judges too. 18-year non-renewable terms. Mm-hmm. I don't hear here. But I don't think you can find that without amending the Constitution. Isn't that an argument you do it straight through legislation? Am I crazy? Well, I've seen the argument. I can tell you who's made it, but I'm not persuaded okay. by it. Article 3, Section 1 of the Constitution says that justice of the Supreme Court and whatever lower courts Congress will create will have their positions for life, assuming good behavior. I don't think that Congress can eliminate that by statute. Mm-hmm. So you ask me, what would I like to see yeah. happen that, All right, so that's an effective governance question that you right. think is is disallowed. What 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 are some others? What are some other things that maybe progressives would like to see read into the Constitution that you don't think can be there because it's just not there in the it's just not there in the text? I will make the argument, and I do, that the Electoral College is unconstitutional. But in reality, I think eliminating the Electoral College itself would require a constitutional amendment. I think the Electoral College is incredibly inconsistent with democracy isn't the most basic idea of democracy. The person who gets the most votes becomes the office holder. And that's inconsistent with the Electoral College. But that's such an interesting thing you just said, the idea that the Constitution can have unconstitutional parts. Well, that's, I believe, because amendments modify the Constitution's text. So imagine that Congress would use its power to regulate commerce among the states to license newspapers. Congress would have that power under Article One. But it would be unconstitutional because it would violate the First Amendment. Or imagine that Congress would use its taxing power under Article One to tax one race more than another race. Congress has that power under Article One, but the amendment to the Constitution that includes equal protection would prohibit that. I'd make the argument, but I, no court's going to accept it, that the amendment to the Constitution that requires the federal government comply with equal protection makes the Electoral College unconstitutional. Hmm. But I don't think that's a realistic argument. Um, I think there's a better argument that winner-take-all is unconstitutional because there's nothing in the Constitution but a state should allocate their electors. But as an example of something that realistically no court is going to declare unconstitutional. Or I'll give you another example. I think it's inconsistent with the Constitution for the United States to be a permanent colonial power over Puerto Rico, over Virgin Islands, over Guam, over the Northern Marianas Island. Here you have people in these territories who are United States citizens, but they don't get to vote for president. They don't have representation in Congress. I think that should be unconstitutional, but I I can't interpret the Constitution realistically to accomplish that. How do you think about the D.C. case? It's another example. I think it should be unconstitutional for D.C. to not have representation in Congress, to not have senators and representatives. Doesn't that violate the most basic maxim of taxation without representation? And yet, I don't think it can be changed without a constitutional amendment. So all of these are examples in answer to your question, what can't be done without a constitutional amendment? There are a number of ongoing fights over constitutional interpretation that that, that seem very profound, but it it does appear to me that one that we are re-entering after thinking it relatively settled for a long time is over what the federal government can do through the Commerce Clause. And in particular, what kinds of social services it can do, what kinds of regulations on businesses and, and, and competition it can do. And there's clearly a move on the on the right to return to an era of constitutional interpretation where a lot of 
things that progressives would like to pass or have passed legislatively, like the Affordable Care Act. But you can imagine a lot of different versions of um, Medicare for all. A lot of people, I think, believe is on is on stronger ground. But you can imagine a lot of different versions of climate change bills and universal pre-K and other things like that that um, conservatives would see increasingly as beyond what the federal government's power is. What does, how do you rate that argument? How do you rate the danger of it? And what is the response to it? Let me trace a bit of history here. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution says that Congress can regulate commerce with foreign nations, with Indian tribes, and among the several states. Very early in American history, in a case called Gibbons versus Ogden, Chief Justice John Marshall gave this an enormously expansive interpretation. He basically said, Congress can regulate anything that affects more than one state, and Congress can do so irrespective of the desire of the states. And that was the interpretation that was followed throughout the 19th century. Then, in the early 20th century, until 1937, the Supreme Court narrowly interpreted the Commerce Clause. It's that commerce just means one stage of business, buying and selling. There has to be a direct effect on interstate commerce, and the existence of states limits Congress's commerce power. Then from 1937 until 1995, not one federal law was struck down as exceeding the scope of Congress's commerce power. In 1995, the court decided United States versus Lopez, where it found a federal law unconstitutional as exceeding the commerce power. It was the Gun-Free School Zone Act that made it a federal crime to have guns within a thousand feet of a school. And the court split five to four along ideological lines. I think it's clear that the founders wanted many guns inside elementary schools. Exactly. A a crucial value of the American founding. In 2000, in United States versus Morrison, the court five to four found unconstitutional the civil damages provision of the Violence Against Women Act, a provision that allowed victims of gender-motivated violence sexual assault, domestic violence, to sue in federal court. Many thought these two cases were going to be a harbinger of what was to come, and the court was going to begin striking down a lot of federal laws exceeding the Congress power. It didn't, and it hasn't happened. Now, with a more conservative court, it could. Um, and I mean, conceivably, and I've heard conservatives say that you know even things like Social Security are unconstitutional. Hard to believe the court's going to want to go very far down that path. Um, many of the examples you mentioned, like Medicare for All or Universal K through 12, would con- things Congress would likely do through its spending power, where it's always had the ability to spend money in any way it thinks serves the general welfare. One of the, thing, one of the reasons I think it's changing on the right is that, two reasons. One is that it has certainly seemed to me as somebody who is not um, a legal scholar but has covered the Affordable Care Act um, legal challenges quite extensively, that the Republican movement and the conservative movement has gotten itself in a loop of having to take extremely bizarre challenges very seriously in order to achieve an end that they care about deeply but cannot achieve legislatively. And that has led to them repeatedly ending up committing themselves to acts of interpretation that would have seemed ridiculous five years before, 10 years before. And that then when it's struck down and everybody's very sad or John Roberts decides not to go as far as they want him to go, it's again, it's another one of these moments where in order to oppose that, to be upset about it, you have to you have to affirm the underlying value. And so then I read somebody like George Will saying conservatives, you need to re-embrace judicial activism, that you need a much more activist court in order to strike these things down. And I look at the increasing demographic issues that the right is seeing in front of it. 
um, and the fears it has that uh, as it loses power in American politics, if it loses power in American politics, that uh, that the takers, <laughs> as opposed to the makers, will just give themselves all the free stuff. And it seems to me that you have a couple of these things converging into a, a fundamental mistrust of democracy as applied through legislation. Um, a set of newly rediscovered or, or reapplied ideas that you really should be trying to strike down big bills through the courts. Um, and then finally, this idea of judicial activism being the final readout of power that is quite dangerous as a cocktail all put together. Wow, there's a lot in that question. <laughs> Let me try to break it down into a few parts. It's more of a conversation than an interview. <laughs> sure. But no, it's a wonderful conversation. Um, is part of that you said there's a loss of faith in democratic institutions. It tremendously frightens me. The loss of faith in Congress. I recently saw that the approval rating for Congress was 18, and I worried it was 18 people, not 18%. Sure, yeah. um, and I think the loss of faith in government institutions really goes back to the late 60s and early 70s, and both liberals and conservatives have found it politically useful to attack government institutions. And the extent to which government is essential for us often gets lost in that conversation. We all want government to make sure that the food we're eating is safe. We all want the government to make sure that there are good schools that are there. We all want the government to protect national defense, and yet we lose sight of the importance of that. And with a president who is disliked by such a large percentage of the population, with the courts falling in public esteem, what does all of that mean for the future of democracy and the government? I don't know, but I want to latch on to that as part of what you say. In terms of the second thing you say is conservatives striking down major bills. And I think it ties to a third thing I want to identify. We talk about judicial restraint and activism. There's never been a good definition of what's judicial activism versus judicial restraint. I've often thought that people use the phrase judicial activism for the cases they build things they don't like. If you don't like it, it's judicial activism. But let's try to come up with an operational definition. It's active if it's striking down laws and it's more restrained if it's deferring to the political process. It's active if it's overruling precedent and restrained if it's following precedent. It's active if it's deciding broadly, it's restrained if it's ruling narrowly. That seems neutral. Well, then you think of things like Citizens United striking down a very important law that was only passed by Congress, overruling a seven-year-old precedent, deciding broadly when narrow ruling would have been more possible. It was the conservatives they're engaging in judicial activism. And so I'd conclude in response to your question by saying, I wonder if now that conservatives have control of the Supreme Court and will for a long time to come, they're increasing the control of the lower federal courts, that as conservatives are going to embrace judicial activism yeah. and as liberals will pick up the restraint of judicial restraint. I at least think half of that's true. Um, I know, uh, again, going back to some of my views about liberals just being less invested in constitutional interpretation, I don't know that I think the left is going to become heavily invested in judicial restraint except as a like an accusation of hypocrisy. Like, haha, you say you believe in judicial restraint, but look what you just did. But I don't think there's any doubt that the right is becoming more invested in a more activist judiciary, or at least to, to take your point more seriously, a more ambitious judiciary, right? A, a judiciary willing to make more ambitious rulings to accord to, to the right's vision of the world. And I'll tell you what worries me. I, I call this the like the, the doom loop of undemocracy. Right now, the president 
is the runner-up in the popular vote from 2016. The majority um, party in the Senate has gotten fewer votes um, than the minority party in the Senate over the past three elections cumulatively. If those two things weren't true, you would have a progressive majority on the U.S. Supreme Court. It would now be a 5-4 or even 6-3 progressive tilt, um, depending on how you want to look at it. And the thing that I see happening is that as conservatives are able to keep control of the court, despite not winning elections, they are then passing um, rulings that make it easier to win elections without winning majorities. So, and you've talked about some of these in your book. Um, we've talked about the gerrymandering ruling, but there's a ruling weakening public sector unions. There's Citizens United. Um, and, you know, one can come up with a much longer list. And so you end up having a kind of like an alley-oop style approach between a party that is winning without winning majorities of the public and then the judges they appoint who are making it easier for them to win without winning majorities of the public. And then you also then have them backing themselves into a position where once that really becomes your strategy, then democracy becomes more and more and more threatening because you've, you're actually gotten yourself into such a hole that it would be hard to climb back out with the public. And it seems to me like a very plausible um, path for our country to go down in the coming years. Yes, and it's a very frightening path. And I'll just add one example to what you mentioned, and that concerns the Voting Rights Act. It's another and great don't example, forget, yes. in Shelby County versus Holder, the Supreme Court struck down a crucial provision of the Voting Rights Act and then paved the way for states like Texas and North Carolina to impose restrictions that limited minority voters in exactly the way that had been disapproved under the Voting Rights Act. And as we look at states like Georgia or Florida or Texas, the question is, will the popular will even be able to be expressed there because of voter suppression and because of the striking down of the Voting Rights Act, key provisions of it? I think it's a very frightening, uh, very apocalyptic look to the future. Um, a lot's going to turn on 2020 and what happens in the years after that. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. So one thing that you hear from Democrats now, which you didn't hear five years ago, is that in the aftermath of the Merrick Garland case and the feeling many have that the current court conservative majority is on some level illegitimate, is ideas for various forms of court packing, um, of adding justices, which one can do. I'm curious what you think of that conversation. I'll start where you finished. The Constitution doesn't specify the number of justices on the Supreme Court. It's varied from five to 10 over the course of American history. Nine is a historical accident. It had been 10 into the late 1860s, and Congress didn't want Andrew Johnson, an enormously unpopular president, to appoint someone to the court. So they said, the next time there's a vacancy, we're going to just eliminate that seat and make it nine. And it's been ever since. My position, both publicly and privately, is that the Democrats should not talk about court packing now that they should wait until seeing the results of the 2020 election. And if Democrats get both the president and both houses of Congress, that's something to consider as a possibility. But I think to talk about it now in a serious way is just to encourage people who might not otherwise come out and vote to vote for Donald Trump. The number one reason that Trump voters gave in 2016 for casting their ballot was the Supreme Court. According to the CNN exit poll, 54% of Trump voters said their number one reason was the Supreme Court. I think that 
court packing is one of many things the Democrats can consider in 2020, but only if they got both houses of Congress and only if there's a substantial the presidency and there's substantial consensus behind it. Part of the point there, though, is that you think this is a it is a legitimate conversation to have. It is not violating some important principle in American politics or constitutional interpretation to imagine changing the composition of the Supreme Court as a response to um, you know, conservative actions, which also themselves changed the uh, what otherwise would have been the composition of the Supreme Court. Prior to 2016, 24 times in American history, there had been a vacancy during the last year of president's term. In 21 of 24, the Senate confirmed. In three instances, the Senate denied confirmation. But until 2016, never before had the Senate said, no hearings, no vote on a presidential nominee. I think it is a stolen seat on the Supreme Court. That doesn't tell us what we should do about it, but the Republicans broke a long-standing tradition. And then the question is, how should the Democrats respond to that? There's an interesting idea. I, I will I will admit to both finding that view very persuasive and always being having a kind of like a seize up around court packing, right? It it, it makes me uncomfortable. Um just because I imagine the cycle of like uh response and escalation that could that could flow from it. And yet, as you say, I, I agree that it's a, a seat taken under uh, unusual circumstances. There's an idea that Pete Buttigieg has been putting forward, but actually comes from um, two law professors writing a piece in Vox. And, and it's quite interesting to me. What it says, the way to is the way to construct the court is to reimagine it and, and recompose it such that it has 15 justices, five from the Democrats, five from the Republicans, and then five who have to be uh, agreed upon jointly by those uh, politically appointed justices. And so the idea there would be to basically balance the power of the parties and create then a nonpartisan path to the court and um, lower the stakes of Supreme Court vacancies altogether because you're just not going to have this situation where one side gets control of the court for a generation. I'm curious what you think of that proposal. Of course, if the justices have life tenure, the composition is set for the future. And justice today, we're talking about five to four, then it would be eight to seven. I think I have a simpler way to get us there and a better way to get us there. And I've proposed it in a different book. Any president could do this. Any president could create a merit selection committee for the Supreme Court. It said, I'm going to create a committee and you can pick the number. And I'm going to have it be two thirds from my party and one third from the other political party. And I want them to send me three nominees that 75% of them can agree to. And I promise to pick from their nominees or pick somebody else. I think it would do a tremendous amount to end the confirmation fight and to make sure that the focus really was on the quality of the nominee. Because if it takes bipartisan support in this group, then it has to be somebody who's much more likely to be from the middle than from an ideological But, but wasn't extreme. that the Merrick Garland? The, I mean, isn't isn't Merrick Garland literally the candidate you would have gotten from a, a, a merit committee like that? I mean, Orrin Hatch says this should be the nominee. This would be a guy who I would help get confirmed. I think if it came through a merit selection committee, the pressure would be even greater on the Senate confirm such an individual. But the answer then would be, if it were a Merrick Garland situation, since the Senate would still have to confirm under your 15 justice proposal, if it were a Merrick Garland situation and Mitch McConnell was the majority leader, they still wouldn't confirm to fill the vacancies. Because even though it's 15, you can't force the Senate to confirm if it doesn't want to. Right. I mean, that's why to me, it seems that we need to do some kind of de-escalation. Um, it's one reason, like you, I support Supreme Court term limits with all my heart, because uh, I think that the idea that it's all completely random, you don't know how many a president will get, 
um, and it could be 40 or 40 years on the court. It just raises the stakes too high. But what what seems true is that three things have combined here. One is that judicial review, which is an incredibly powerful um, thing the Supreme Court has. The second is the politicization of or, or the polarization of the parties and through the parties of the court itself. And then um, the uh, uh, like the, the lifetime appointments just make the stakes so high that every one of these has become apocalyptic. I mean, something I, I, I'm writing a book that that talks about the Garland case in, in some detail. And one of the things I always think about is, well, why should Mitch McConnell have done anything differently? This was power he had. These are important issues to him and to his party. He was, you know, the voters of Kentucky approve of what he did, I assume, or at least have not, you know, gotten him out of office and don't look likely to do so. The idea that norms are going to restrain us when the stakes are this high, it seems fanciful to me. And so if you don't want this to be a flashpoint that seems to me to genuinely carry the possibility of throwing American politics into crisis at some point, you have to do something to lower the, the, the tension. I'm in favor of lowering the tension. I don't think going to 15 and that proposal is going to lower the tension. I think if Mitch McConnell were in power and it was the swing justice he wasn't going to confirm at that point in time. I can't wait to read your book. I think my answer to you is there are so many norms that government operates by that aren't in the Constitution. Tradition matters. The Supreme Court is talking about how history places a gloss on the Constitution. The tradition has always been that the Senate does approve or deny confirmation to a presidential nominee for the Supreme Court. Never before had the Senate said, because we have the power, we're not going to do it. Of course, recently Mitch McConnell has said, if there's a vacancy in 2020, of course the Senate would approve Donald Trump's pick. That makes clear there's no principle here. It's just the exercise of political power. That then will carry you to the future. It will, I think, mean from now on, whenever the president and the Senate are of different political parties, no one's going to confirm during the last two years of presidential term. In fact, I wonder if the president and the senator of different political parties, if the Senate will confirm anyone for the Supreme Court. I completely agree. If Hillary Clinton had won both the popular vote and the presidency (laughs) and had been able to fill Antonin Scalia's seat um, with some left-leaning nominee, um, what do you think would be different today or would be on its way to becoming different? Like, walk me through the walk me through what happened on Earth, too. Oh, so much would be different right now. I mean, start with the decisions that the Supreme Court has handed down. Partisan gerrymandering would now be unconstitutional. I have little doubt that Merrick Garland would have joined that magnificent Kagan opinion referred to. Or to take another example, where a year ago, the Supreme Court in Janus versus American Federation said that states can no longer require non-union members to pay the share of the dues that go to support collective bargaining. That would have come out different five to four. I would have won the case that I argued in the Supreme Court this term, five to four. Um, but I think as you look to next term of the court, you'll especially see this. The court's going to hear the first week of October issues is whether sexual orientation and employment and discrimination violate equal protection, uh, the Title VII of the Nice First Rights Act, the prohibit sex discrimination in employment. The court's going to hear a case about whether discrimination against transgender individuals violates Title VII. The court's going to hear a Second Amendment case about a New York City ordinance that prevents basically having guns outside the home. The court's going to hear challenges to the deferred action of President Trump's rescission of the Deferred Action of Childhood Arrival Program. I mean, we can just go through all of these examples where it come out five to four. Longer term, 
I think, had Merrick Garland been confirmed, the court would have overturned or significantly limited Citizens United. I think the court would have much lessened the protections of gun rights under the Second Amendment. I don't think Merrick Garland would have been the justice, but I think there would have been five justices at some point to declare the death penalty cruel and unusual punishment. So I'm trying to talk at two levels. Mm -hmm. One is the things that the current court is doing or is likely to do that would come out differently with Garland. But then there's the whole thing, set of things that might have happened that never will. I think it's a good place to, to come to a close, a good elegiac place to come to a close. So the question I'll end on, what are three books that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience? In terms of law, I pick Simple Justice by Richard Kluger. I think it's one of the most, one of the most magnificent books about law that I've ever read. Um, it's the story of the Brown versus Board of Education litigation, and it's beautifully written. I think it came out in 1975. I recently reread it, and I think it's as timely now as, as it's ever been. Um, in terms of constitutional law, um, I'd especially recommend one of the versions of Larry Tribe's American Constitutional Law, which is, it's a treatise, so it's hard to read, but it's really a magnificent theorizing of constitutional law um, in all areas. Um, I'd also, in constitutional law, pick the Federalist Papers, that it, how brilliant, these were a series of op-eds written, largely by Madison and Hamilton, to some extent by Jay, um, that really are about what government should be, and they're, they're as timeless as ever. So I didn't prepare for the question. So those are three things that immediately come to mind, and then I could pick the things that I like apart from law. Um, you want to give me one you like apart from law? I think my favorite nonfiction book apart from law was The Boys of Summer by Roger Kahn, which tells the story of the Brooklyn Dodgers in the mid-1950s and then what happened to them later. And um, that was magnificently written. Um, if I have a favorite novel, it's The Chosen by Chaim Potak. Erwin Chemerinsky, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Erwin Chemerinsky for being here. Thank you to Topher Ruth for engineering, to Jeffrey Geld for producing, to Roger Karma for researching the Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media Podcast Network production. 